All right, let's get the show on the road. Commanding you to bow down. I'm on your side. By branding you as a rebel. But you're not. A traitor. This isn't freedom. This is fear. the government. The government is not us. This is Deed of Files. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Dean O Files. Episode number 88. Coming at you live on Alternative Internet Radio from Mega City 3. We are on uh we are recording on the 2nd of February. Right around the time of my birthday actually. Um, goodness gracious, because we took a little break from news last week, the news has really piled up for us. And so what's going to happen is I've got a load of tabs open right now, and I'm probably not going to get through it all. What I'm probably going to do is have a bunch of stories that I didn't talk about during the show in the show notes at the end. So... If you guys don't generally use the show notes, this is the show to check them out on because they are going to be jammed with stories that I skipped. There's going to be at probably at least five stories in those show notes that I am not going to get to today because, oh my God, there's just so much. Um, Quick note on something I'm not going to cover. I'm not going to talk about Zero Hedge getting kicked off Twitter. Because doing that would necessitate me talking about um, about coronavirus, and I do not have the information I want to talk about about that yet. I don't have it all together. Um, if you guys want to see that sort of saga of Zero Hedge getting kicked off of Twitter, it's it's been all over Twitter. Um, there's a free Zero Hedge account that's been started up. Um, but that whole thing is tied in very closely to coronavirus, and that entire story is sort of interdependent with that. And so I can't, I don't feel comfortable talking about it because I don't have the coronavirus information. I will talk about it when I talk about coronavirus stuff, which I don't know when that's going to be. I have to have time to sit down and actually sift through all this information that we have because there's some interesting conspiracy theory about it that um, rings kind of true, but might be total bullshit. So I don't want to like start talking about it half cocked. I'd rather actually have the information and be able to say the things that I think might be bullshit versus the things that I think have credence. So um, we're not going to touch on that yet, but yes, zero hedge was kicked off of Twitter. They were kicked off right after they shared a story about the possibility of coronavirus being a bioweapon that came out of the same facility in Wuhan. Again, I don't have all of the research done to talk about it yet, so we'll be talking about that at a later date. Um, but for now, let's jump into some news. So uh, 
we've been following a few different stories from fire. We've been following the Babson College uh, firing of one of their faculty after he made a tweet um, talking about what if Iran released, you know, I, I, or he said something like, uh, I think Iran should release a list of 53 religious and cultural sites in the U.S. they'd be willing to bomb. Um, he got fired for that. And so there's new, there's new news about that. We've been following a Yukon story. There's new news about that. Uh, but let's begin with something that is fresh. Let's go to Mizzou for a moment. This from FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, um, thefire.org. This was published on the, the uh, 31st of January. Oh, by the way, I know that I'm counter-programming the Super Bowl right now. <laughs> so there's not likely to be very much chat activity and stuff like that. There's a couple of people hanging out, and I appreciate you being there. Exercy's there. Uh, HFTM is there. But, like, I realize I'm counter-programming the biggest football game of the year. So, <laughs> I'm not that concerned about it. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, this was written by Caitlin Patton, again on the fire. Is student privacy a worthy sacrifice for better attendance rates? Mizzou thinks so. From the story, earlier this month, the Kansas City Star reported that uh, new University of Missouri students would be part of the pilot program for an app that records class attendance by tracking students' locations. The app, called Spotter EDU, was developed by former Mizzou basketball coach Rick Carter and has been used by the university to track student-athlete attendance for four years. The program works by... There's a car. The program works... I've lost my place. The program works by using beacons placed in classrooms that ping off students' cell phones as they come and go. It can, however, quote, expand to cover any size of space accurately and precisely. This kind of technology is not unique. Other, another company that uses school Wi-Fi networks to monitor students' movements told the Washington Post that it gathers data from 6,000 locations each day. Professors determined that students will participate in this new push to track attendance by volunteering their classes to be part of the pilot before the semester began. Uh, initial reporting indicated that the students were not given a choice. If one of their professors chose to participate in the program, the student must participate as well. In response to the announcement, the ACLU of Missouri expressed, quote, very deep privacy concerns. I'm sorry, they didn't say very. I did. Uh, about the app. On Monday, Mizzou issued a statement attempting to alleviate these concerns, stating that, quote, no GPS tracking is enabled, meaning the technology cannot locate the students once they leave class. The university also rebutted initial reports that students will have no option but to download the app and participate in the program if the professors have volunteered their class to be part of the pilot, quote, if a student does not want to use the app to track their attendance, they'll be required to check in with their professor through an alternate method, such as signing an attendance sheet. In order for the technology to work, a student must elect to download Spotter, the Spotter EDU app. According to Spotter EDU, the company is now working with over 30 schools. Late last year, the Washington Post spoke with students and faculty at several of the universities, including uh, Virginia Commonwealth University and Syracuse University, uh, where Spotter EDU or similar attendance tracking technology had already been implemented. At VCU, attendance is automatically logged for any student who is attached to the university's Wi-Fi network. Notably, this is one of the ways the University of Connecticut identified and charged two students for hearing racial slurs last year. Uh, more on that story later. Those students subsequently faced criminal charges in Connecticut State Court. HFTM says in the chat, uh, where I am, athletes must check into class via an app that's even reported to coaches. Yeah, that could be the same thing, actually. Um, this, this seems like something that's being used a lot. Um, my, my thing is like, okay, so if you're on the Wi-Fi network, uh, 
Use a VPN. They they can't identify you if you're doing that. Um, well, I shouldn't say can't. There there are ways, but not likely to be ways that the university would be using. Um, and the whole thing just seems strange to me. It just seems weird. I don't know. I don't. I don't. <sighs> I don't like this at all. Um, I'm not going to finish up the story. If you'd like to finish it up, it'll be in the show notes. But uh, th this is uh, HFTM says they're disciplined for not checking in. My problem with this is that, first of all, these kids are adults who are paying to be there, um, which is like kind of the point. Um, if you're an athlete, you're technically being paid to be there if you're on scholarship. But outside of that, I don't see because I mean, basically, sports is treated at universities as a marketing program. So if you're like your sports, your your athletes are technically uh, well, they're treated as uh, employees in the marketing branch of the school. So they kind of they, they give them all these weird requirements. But even outside of that, this whole thing is just creepy to me. I do not like this idea that state actors feel comfortable tracking people in this way. Um, and here's the thing, too. It doesn't just have to be in the classroom. They could put these beacons in dorm rooms. They could put these beacons wherever they want to put them on campus. Um, so they know, like, you skipped class because you were in a dorm room or because you were, you know, wherever else on campus that you were. You're playing pool in the, in the student union, something like that. So I, I just don't like this at all. These, these... <sighs> and also, here's, here's another thing. If you don't download the app, you have to talk to a professor and you have to sign an attendance sheet which is what you do already. So they're not really changing. They're not making it any easier. Now they just have two systems instead of the one system they had before, the attendance sheet. Um, that that typically would just get passed around and people would sign in. Like it's what are they? What are they? What do they think they're accomplishing here? This doesn't make any sense. Um, let's move on to this Babson College update. This was published on the 24th, written by Adam Steinbach. Uh, Babson College falsely claims faculty member fired over a ran Facebook post was not a faculty member. I love when these stories come out because people step on their own dick and then they lie about having stepped on their own dick, further stepping on their own dick. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to see because these people just can't shut it down and just be honest. Just be honest about it. Um, from the story, yesterday, a number of civil liberties organizations joined by a diverse range of artists and academics called on Babson College to rescind its termination of Ashine Fa uh, Fancy, an adjunct faculty member fired over a Facebook post lampooning President Trump's threat to, to bomb a raiding cultural sites. The American Association of University Professors also wrote separately to Babson, warning that, quote, the issues posed by this case are of a gravity sufficient uh, end quote. For the AAUP to potentially open an investigation into the college's response, raising the possibility that Babson will continue to face the fallout from this decision for months or years to come. Meanwhile, Babson's administration isn't doing itself any favors. Babson has, until now, steadfastly stood by its public statement, which appears to have been misleading in its claim that the college was, quote, cooperating with law enforcement. But yesterday, responding to the New York Times, the college departed from that statement to make a new claim. Quote, a representative for Babson College declined to comment except to say that Mr. Fancy was not a professor at the institution, but a staff member. That, too, turns out to be misleading at best. As Fancy notes the New York Times, he taught at Babson from 2009 to 2012. More importantly, if Babson had not terminated him, Fancy would have been teaching a class on sustainable marketing during the spring semester, which began on Tuesday. In fact, he would have been teaching yesterday, the same day Babson was telling the New York Times he was not a faculty member. Here's how, here's the now deleted entry from the Babson course catalog. And they have a screenshot there. Babson itself described Fancy as a faculty member until it began scrubbing the website to delete mentions of his name. Unfortunately for Babson, Google's cache kept copies of the pages it was deleting. 
For example, here's an April 19 profile on Babson's site, now memory hold. Quote, adjunct professor and corporate sustainability uh, professional Ashin Fancy. I I love that name. P-H-A-N-S-E-Y. It just sounds like just saying fancy is just, it's crazy. Uh, NBA 08 plans to bridge numerous Babson College initiatives into a systemic strategy and vision for his new role as Babson's director of sustainability. He also created and has taught two courses in entrepreneurship uh, and marketing. Even in describing his role as a staff member, Babson's staff profile of Fancy, also now deleted, made sure to reference that he frequently lectures at Babson and other universities. To recap, Babson College has so far issued misleading public statements implying that there was an active law enforcement investigation and falsely claimed a faculty member was not a faculty member, all while refusing to stick by its public commitment to freedom of expression. What are students of Babson, primarily a business school, to learn from watching this hands-on example? Is the credibility and integrity of an institution important? And what lessons should students of Babson's take in crisis management as they watch their institution's leadership respond to a minor social media controversy by stumbling into the pages of the New York Times? If Babson is so opposed to jokes, perhaps it should stop acting like one. This is why I love reading Fire, is that, and actually Steinbach especially, is good at this. He's so cutting when he writes, especially when somebody is like continually stepping on their own dick. He he does such a great job of just just twisting the knife in a way that that should send the message of stop fucking up. Put it down. Put it down. Just stop what you're doing and nobody ever listens. Um, let's move on to this Yukon story. Uh, this, this is an update to that Yukon story. It's written by Samantha Harris, published on the 31st of January. Yukon's disdain for due process rights evident in hearing transcript. Now, I will tell you, I'm not going to read these transcript things and, and stuff like that. I'll read some of, some of the commentary from this story. If you want to read the transcript itself and things like that, you can do that in the show notes. Um, last week... I wrote about an unusually strong opinion from the U.S. District Court for the District of Connecticut finding that a University of Connecticut student accused of sexual misconduct had shown a, quote, clear likelihood of success on his claim that UConn violated his constitutional due process rights. Now FIRE has obtained a transcript of of the status conference that led to that opinion, and it sheds considerable light on what may have motivated U.S. District Judge Michael Shea to knock out a powerful 13-page opinion in defense of due process later that same day. As I explained last week, one of the critical issues in this case is that the university refused to hear from several of plaintiff's witnesses who were prepared to testify about matters directly concerning the, com- the complainant's credibility. Um, throughout that, uh, that conference call with the party's lawyers, the judge repeatedly expressed his concern with the fact that these witnesses had not been permitted to testify or even provide written statements in response The university's lawyer repeatedly tried to argue that the witness's testimony was not relevant. First, she argued that their testimony was irrelevant because they only witnessed the consensual sexual activity in the car, not the allegedly non-consensual activity in the bedroom. But the judge disagreed. If the complainant lied about initiating sexual activity in the car, that spoke directly to her credibility. And the two parties' credibility is the central issue in this case. When that argument failed, the university's lawyer then argued that that their testimony was irrelevant because they had not actually watched the alleged lap dance. The front seat witness felt the complainant's knees uh, moving rhythmically against the back of his seat. The back seat witnesses looked away in discomfort when he realized what was going on. At this point, the judge became openly exasperated, telling UConn's lawyer, quote, Come on, I thought you were going to be serious about this. That's not a serious answer. Eventually, the judge moved on to his concern with the other part of the procedure, the fact that UConn's hearing officers relied on the, on the earlier written statements of several of the complainant's witnesses who did not actually testify at the hearing. 
This, the judge worried, did not provide the plaintiff with a meaningful opportunity to confront the witnesses against him. The judge noted that other federal courts had found cross-examination necessary to due process in the campus judicial setting. The Second Circuit has yet to address the issue. But he ultimately did not uh, even need to express an opinion on that to find that UConn's procedure was deficient. Asking UConn's lawyer to defend the university procedure, he said, uh, and I will read this quote, uh, why, is that compliant, uh, why is that compliant with due process? We're not talking about cross-examination. We're just talking about a chance to question in, the, in this indirect fashion. Why is that fair? Or why is that in compliance with due process, given the, uh, given the degree of sanction involved here? I'm not saying that in every case, you know, they have to allow full-blown trial-type procedures. I know that's not the law. But given the severity of the sanction here, how is it in compliance with due process that he's not allowed to question or have somebody question at least statements that were being relied on by witnesses who, excuse me, by the hearing officers, by witnesses who weren't even present? Uh, from the story I asked, the plaintiff's attorney, Michael Thad Allen, if he'd been surprised by the university's seemingly cavalier attitude towards, towards the plaintiff's rights at the status conference. Quote, I'm not surprised because this is how they conducted the entire investigation and hearing, Allen said. The person who did seem surprised was the judge when UConn effectively admitted that their approach was simply to believe the accusing student no matter what the other witnesses had to say. Just hours after the status conference, the judge issued his ruling that by excluding plaintiff's witnesses and denying him any opportunity to confront the complainant's witnesses, UConn had likely violated the, the plaintiff's due process rights. Um, this whole story is interesting, and the, the, uh, there are several, um, sections from the actual transcript throughout this thing that I did skip. So, if you're interested in those things, go ahead and give them a read. Fire's also done a bunch of other stuff recently. They released their 10 Worst Colleges for Free Speech on the 29th of January. Um, their 10 Worst Colleges for Free Speech for 2020. Um, they also released this story. <clears throat> There's a lot of backstory to it, though. I think it's probably too long for this episode. But check it out, because the headline itself is hilarious. When a judge tells you twice in one week that you're violating students' constitutional rights, it may be time to listen. Uh, I just found that amazing. That will also be in the show notes. And now we have a story that was submitted by SawU77 uh, in the Discord. I generally will go on there and ask for people to submit stories for the show. Um, if they have something that they would like to, to see covered or hear covered rather, um, they can do that there and, uh, you can join them over there. Uh, there's a link to the discord on the roguefile.com. Um, it's not the roguefile.com. It's roguefile.com. It's on the roguefile. This from NPR published on the 31st of January. The long uneasy wait is over. Parties, protests, and solemn silence greet Brexit. Uh, this story was written by Colin Dwyer. You'll be forgiven if you still don't quite believe it. By this reporter's very rough tally, NPR has run well over a thousand pieces about Brexit, both on air and online, since the UK shocked the world with its vote to leave the European Union more than three and a half years ago. Not one of those stories could reasonably utter this simple, definitive statement, Brexit is happening today. Yet here we are, at long last, as of 11 p.m. Uh, GMT, that's 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Friday, the UK has shoved off from the multinational bloc and its 27 remaining member states, and for the first time since 1973, when it joined the predecessor European economic community, set off on its own, to a degree at least. As NPR's Frank Langford explained in his thorough primer, the deadline does not immediately halt the flow of people and goods between the divorced parties. Instead, it ushers in a transitional period through the end of the year, during which uh, time Britons will enjoy many of the same rights as they did before the deadline, while British and European representatives continue to hash out the details of a permanent trade deal that so far has eluded them. Still, for a journey this fraught and winding, Friday has offered a massive milestone, one that politicians and residents on both sides of the English Channel marked in myriad ways, ranging from consternation to celebration. 
Uh, observers know well which reaction to expect at number 10 Downing Street. Is it, it is there at the British Prime Minister's residence in London that Boris Johnson feted the UK's departure with a party for his cabinet and a televised address to his country. Quote, this is the moment when the dawn breaks and the curtain goes up on a new act, the Prime Minister said in his prepared remarks. Quote, it is a moment of real national renewal and change. Few have tied their political fortunes more closely to Brexit than Johnson, one of the principal leaders of the 2016 campaign to leave the EU. The prominent Brexiteers resigned as foreign secretary in 2018 to signal his distrust with the withdrawal agreement reached by Prime Minister Theresa May and then replaced her after she stepped down. Johnson's early tenure was marked by a string of defeats as he tried to push for departure one way or another, but his attempts to, quote, get Brexit done grew much easier with a landslide victory in last month's parliamentary elections. Even as Brexit supporters gathered for parties in London and across the country, not everyone is cheering the Prime Minister's hard-won victory lap Friday. Far from it, in fact. Hours before the deadline, uh, throngs of pro-EU demonstrators gathered on Downing Street and near the House of Parliament in Westminster to register their objections to the coming divorce. Further north in Edinburgh, Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon laid out her own objections uh, Friday and made the case uh, why those objections warrant a second independence referendum for Scotland roughly five and a half years after voters decided to remain in the UK. We know that change is coming, but it does not have to be the change that the Tories want to impose on Scotland. A new independence referendum will put the decision about the best path for Scotland in our own hands, she said. And there's a cast iron mandate from both the public and the Scottish Parliament for that referendum, which I find hilarious, by the way. Um, the Scottish National Party, the SNP, um, which I believe is the Independence Party of Scotland, the idea that they want to separate from the UK. For such an organization to be attempting to become independent from the UK so that they can continue to be dependent upon the EU is fucking hilarious to me. <laughs> um... I find that so funny. Um, it's just, it's, it's a weird sort of oxymoron with regard to the actual party itself. Uh, continuing from the story, just one day earlier in Edinburgh, Scottish lawmakers voted 64 to 54 to back a non-binding call for a new independence referendum, saying that Brexit had so thoroughly changed the political landscape that voters deserve another ballot. Ministers in London, though, remain unmoved. Earlier this month, a couple of weeks even before the vote in Scottish Parliament, Johnson's government rejected Sturgeon's proposal saying such a vote would merely, quote, continue the political stagnation Scotland has seen for the past decade. The Scottish First Minister, in her speech Friday, acknowledged that the path forward for independence-minded Scots would not be easy. Quote, to achieve independence, a referendum, whenever it happens, whether it's the year as I want or after the next Scottish election, must be legal and legitimate. That's a simple fact, she said. It must demonstrate clearly that there is majority support for independence, and its legality must be beyond doubt. Otherwise, the outcome, even if successful, would not be recognized by other countries. As for those other countries, the reaction Friday's Brexit, uh, the, uh, the reaction Friday's Brexit was guarded. That's uh, a bad sentence. In Europe, German Chancellor Angela Merkel called Brexit Day a quote profound watershed moment, promised good faith negotiations going forward. While French President Emmanuel Macron, speaking in Paris, described the UK's departure as a quote alarm signal that demands to be heard across the continent. Macron reiterated his assertion that the 2016 Leave campaign was filled with quote lies exaggerations, simplifications, and checks that were promised and will never arrive, but also said Brexit reflected that Europe can only progress with significant reforms. Despite the lofty words of leaders on both sides of the divide that just deepened further, perhaps the most vivid moments of the day came without words entirely. The British diplomatic post in Brussels, the seat of the EU, quietly removed the bloc's flag at the close of the business day. Elsewhere in Brussels, EU officials returned the symbolic gesture. A crowd gathered in somber silence outside the European Parliament building where they watched as officials lowered the Union Jack and raise the EU's circle of stars to take its spot in the Pantheon of Members' flags. Man, that is, it's, it's so interesting to see this happen. Um, 
I'm not sure if the EU is going to give them a trade deal, or at least one that's worth anything. I feel like the EU as an organization is going to want to punish the UK for leaving. And doing so, the best way they could possibly do so would be to basically give them the worst fucking trade deal that's ever been seen. Um, which would, uh, I think it would do two things. I think it would make the Remainers argument for them, even though it would be, um, uh, sort of dishonest. The Remainers argument being that this is going to be terrible for the economy of the UK, which I don't believe unless outside actors make it terrible for the economy of the UK. Um, which I totally see as a possibility. I don't trust the EU. I don't trust the EU to behave in good faith. I don't think they're capable of it. I don't think the EU can behave in good faith. I don't think they can be trusted. Um, and so I, I, I it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. And I think the ship could still be turned around. I'm one of those people who's been saying they're not going to let it happen. They're not going to let it happen. And I think they still could force it into reversal. Um, it might be difficult, but I think it's still doable. I'm not so sure anymore that they're not going to let it happen, but I think someone's going to try. I think they're going to try to force Brexit uh, to, to sort of reverse and the UK to rejoin the, uh, the EU. And, and just saying, you know, well, we never really left. We were going to leave at the end of the year for real, but we never really did that. Um, it's absolutely a way that they could do that. Uh, let's move on to another story. Man. I'm kind of having to pick and choose here because I don't want to... I've got a whole thing I want to do later. <laughs> um, so I kind of have to pick and choose what I'm going to... What I'm going to leave behind and, and put in the show notes only. Hmm. Okay. I think I'm going to skip these two stories. I think I'm going to skip... There's an interesting uh, story that Reason has about uh, legislation following the death of Kobe Bryant that is, I think, going to be very interesting. Um, it's about, uh, it's a transportation policy story. Um, so there it's, it's about necessitating that a certain system be installed on, 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 uh, helicopters. And, uh, I think that might just end up getting shunted over to the show notes. And also this story here, that's pretty interesting. Taking our baby to the hospital was made the single most, uh, was the single most harmful decision we made. Child services falsely labeled this dad an abuser and took his adopted newborn. We talked in the last episode about how fucking awful child services is at their job. And so I'm just going to read, uh, in the last episode, the, the interview that I did with Cryptid Bartender, we, we discussed that the fact that child services and almost every government agency, but child services in particular seems to be fucking terrible at their job. And, um, I'll just read the first couple of paragraphs of this just to kind of get a taste for it. And then you can check out the rest in the show notes. Last May, John Cox was worried he had accidentally hurt his newly adopted infant by rolling into her when they both dozed off. Erring on the side of caution, he brought her to Children's Wisconsin Hospital, where he worked, coincidentally, as a pediatric emergency doctor, just to make absolutely sure she was fine. It turned out she had suffered a minor fracture that is common in babies and heals on its own. Two weeks later, Child Protective Services declared him a child abuser and took the baby from him and his wife. The child's been in foster care now for eight months. She's only nine months old. Uh, and then it continues to talk about what exactly led to this and why it happened. So check that out in the show notes. It's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, and it does kind of go right off of what we talked about last week, what Cryptid Bartender and I discussed last week with regard to child services in particular. Um, let's move on to, you know what? Let's, I, I actually think it's time. I think it's time. I think it's that time now. I think you know what time it is. Credits will do fun. It's time for who do you trust? Hubba, hubba, hubba. Money, money, money. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? I'll tell you who I trust. I trust Superior, Executive Producers, Exerci, and Saw You 77, and I trust Producers, Max Ogburn, Absurdist Fool, 
and Wodu. Um, man, it's great to see you guys' names on this list every fucking week. It is so wonderful. I love seeing them. Um, Max Ogburn, been there for a long time. Exerce, uh, Absurdist Fool, Saw You 77, Whoa, dude, you guys are, uh, well, here's the thing. I'll put it to you this way. It's getting pretty close to my birthday. And for my birthday, you guys gave me continued support of the show, and I am so happy to have gotten that. I think it's the greatest gift that I could have received for my birthday. So thank you all so much for being there. Um, if you'd like to join them, you can do so. Uh, you can find links on the Rogue File, roguefile.com, or uh, on Alternative Internet Radio, AIRAD.io. Um, uh, if you don't want to throw any money at the show, if you think the show's not worth any money, perhaps, or maybe you, uh, you just can't pull it off, or it doesn't seem like it's something that you can fit in, or whatever. For whatever reason you think you don't want to do that, you absolutely do not have to. You can join our Discord, become part of the community there. You can share the episodes, or or tell your friends, or whatever it is that you want to do. Uh, spread the word. Um, just having you as part of the community is is absolutely enough. Um, the people who are supporting the show are doing a little bit extra to to you know to sort of show how much they value the show. And I think that's wonderful. But again, you can accomplish the same thing by telling a friend, joining the Discord, uh, being part of the community in some other way. Uh, so thank you all so much for being there. Again, I, I've talked about this before. I'm going to be moving the merch store whenever I have time to do that. Um, it's difficult to find places that work, and it's even more difficult to sit down and spend a couple of hours fine-tuning and uploading artwork and, and making sure the selection's good and, and things like that. So it will be moving eventually. Um, but there's merch available. There are other methods as well. You don't have to use Subscribestar. You can use uh, crypto or, or, or other various methods. Um, those things are all available on the donation page. So uh, thank you guys so much. Superior executive producers Exerce and Sayu77 and producers Max Ogburn, Absurdist Fool, and Woe Dude. You guys are... Absolute gods amongst men, wolves amongst ravens, uh, diamonds in the rough, and bright spots of happiness on this awful and terrible and, and dark and dingy place we all uh, are part of called the internet. All right, let's get to a couple of privacy stories. These are, I've been tracking this facial recognition thing for the show, um, and also for my own edification, because I love this story, this, this, this whole unfolding technology that could lead, and I've said it before, could lead to the incredible, wonderful, amazing cyberpunk future where we all have a crazy asymmetrical face paint and, and what get to walk around with masks and, and holographic things and LEDs in our hats, and it's just going to be great. Um, this was published on the 30th of January, written by Ronald Bailey. For reason, uh, the headline, 40 privacy groups asked federal oversight agency to push for suspension of federal facial recognition technology. A coalition of 40 privacy rights groups has sent an open letter to the privy, uh, privacy, I'm sorry, this, we're out of England now, to the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, PCLOB, requesting that the agency recommend a suspension of all federal use of facial recognition technology. The PCLOB was set up as an independent federal agency in 2007 to review executive branch anti-terrorism efforts with the, with the goal of making sure that citizens' privacy and civil liberties are protected. The PCLOB can also review proposed anti-terrorism legislation, regulations, and policies, and uh, advise the president and executive branch agencies on their privacy and civil liberties implications. Advocates are asking the agency to, to exercise what power it has 
to recommend against the use of facial recognition technology. In early December, the Department of Homeland Security initially announced that it was rolling out facial recognition system that would require that all travelers, including U.S. citizens, be photographed upon entry and departure at airports and seaports. Their photos will be matched against a database of passport and visa photos created and maintained by Customs and Border Protection. In response to pushback from civil liberties organizations, the, CPB, the CBP has withdrawn for the time being its proposal. Now, in an open letter to the PCLOB, a coalition of 40 privacy and civil liberties activist organizations asked the board in light of the, quote, rapid deployment of facial recognition systems directed toward Americans within the United States by federal agencies to, quote, recommend that, uh, to the president and secretary of Homeland Security the suspension of facial recognition systems pending further review. Citing the PCLOB's enabling legislation, the letter's signatories are entirely correct when they declare, quote, the rapid and unregulated deployment of facial recognition poses a direct threat to the precious liberties that are vital to our way of life. Uh, that's the end of the story. I'm, oh man, I just, I, I really, I like seeing this. I like seeing people who are, who are saying, don't do this. This is stupid. This leads to every dystopia we've ever heard of. And, um, you know, one of my favorite things, speaking of dystopias, I've said before, one of my favorite things to look at is, uh, hashtag boring dystopia. Because I think it's an absolute... Why is my cat making noise? I think it's an absolutely wonderful description of the world that we live in right now. Um, I think we do live in a boring dystopia with, you know, surveillance capitalism and all this other stuff that, that's just plainly terrible for us. Um, but it's the norm. But we don't get any of the cool shit from any of the dystopias. And that's kind of what I'm hoping for with this. Um, if they do decide to... Uh, I don't think the federal government might not, but definitely municipalities and shit are going to do this. If they do decide to deploy this facial recognition technology, man, I want the cyberpunk future where we all wear stupid face shit. I want that. I want to have a reason to wire uh, uh, IR LEDs into my fucking hat because I love wearing hats and I want to have a, another functional reason to do so because I want to look like a glow of like a like a glowing orb on the cameras when I walk into a building. These are the things that I want in my life. Um. So when they do deploy this stuff, if being the word that I should use, but won't because I think it's ridiculous, they're absolutely going to deploy this. When they deploy this, I, man, everybody needs to be ready to wear cool shit on their face uh, because that's the best way to fight this kind of shit. It's not begging. It's not begging people not to not to step on our rights. They're going to do that shit anyway. The best the best way to fight this is to assert your rights in light of that. This is what the entire 3D gun community is about. And I love that community. Um, but this is what the entire 3D gun community is about. Asserting your rights in light of their having been uh, trampled on. That's the idea. So I think it's, it's, it's going to happen anyway. We might be able to stave it off with letters like this and, and things of this nature, but it's going to happen. So get those LEDs wired up in your hats, guys, because that's going to be the thing that saves you. It's not going to be the... Uh, it, the government's not going to suddenly decide, oh, no, I guess I won't take away, you know, these civil, civil liberties. No, they're going to take them all away. So be ready to assert them when they do. Uh, another similar. I need to get this cat away from the things that are making. Oh, he just jumped off of it. Never mind. Um, another uh, security uh, privacy focused story from the EFF Congress must stop the Graham Blumenthal anti-security bill. This was published on the 31st of January by Elliot Harmon. There's a new and serious threat to both free speech and security online. Under a draft bill that Bloomberg... I'm sorry, did I say Bloomberg? Yeah, Graham Blumenthal. Yes, under a draft bill that Bloomberg recently leaked, 
the attorney general could unilaterally dictate how online platforms and services must operate. If those companies don't follow the attorney general's rules, they could be on the hook for millions of dollars in civil damages and even state criminal penalties. The bill, known as the Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies, earn it, <laughs> Jesus, fuck these guys, act, grants sweeping powers to the executive branch. It opens the door for government to require new measures to screen user speech and even back doors to read your private communications, a stated goal of one of the bill's authors. Senators Lindsey Graham, the fucking hate Lindsey Graham, um, and Richard Blumenthal, another guy who I fucking hate, have been quietly circulating a draft version of Earn It. Congress must forcefully reject this dangerous bill before it is introduced. Earn It is an attack on speech. It undermines Section 230, the most important law protecting free speech online. Section 230 enforces the common sense principle that if you say something illegal online, you should be the one held responsible, not the website or platform where you said it, with some important exceptions. Section 230 has played a crucial role in creating the modern internet. Without it, social media as we know it today wouldn't exist, and neither would the Internet Archive, Wikimedia, or any essential education community resource. It doesn't just protect speech platforms either. If you ever forwarded an email, thank Section 230 that you could do that without inviting legal risk on yourself. Earn It would establish a, quote, National Commission on Online Child Exploitation Pre Prevention. Oh, we're going to get into this in a little bit. This commission would include the chairman of the Federal Trade Commission, the Attorney General, the Secretary of Homeland Security, and 12 other members handpicked by leaders in Congress. The commission would be tasked with recommending, quote, best practices for providers of interactive computer services regarding the prevention of online child exploitation conduct. But far from mere recommendations, those, quote, best practices would bring it down, uh, would bring the force of law. Platforms that fail to adhere to them would be stripped of their Section 230 protections if they were accused, either in civil or criminal court, of carrying unlawful material related to child exploitation. Laws relating to restrictions on speech must reflect a careful balance of competing policy goals and protections for civil liberties. Lawmakers can only strike that balance through an open, transparent lawmaking process. It would be deeply irresponsible for Congress to offload that duty to an unelected and unaccountable commission. It gets worse. If the, attorneys, if the Attorney General disagrees with the commission's recommendations, he can override them and write his own instead. This bill simply gives too much power to the Department of Justice, which, as a law enforcement agency, is a particularly bad choice to dictate Internet policy. Earn It is a direct threat to constitutional protections for free speech and expression. To pass constitutional muster, a law that regulates the content of speech must be as narrowly tailored as possible so as not to chill legitimate lawful speech. Rather than being narrowly tailored, Earn It is, absolute, is absurdly broad. Under Earn It, the commission would effectively have the power to change and broaden the law however it saw fit, as long as it could claim that its recommendations somehow aided in the prevention of child exploitation. Those laws could change and expand unpredictably, especially after changes in presidential administrations. If you'd like a preview of what types of measures the Attorney General might demand platforms adhere to, it's worth examining what the current AG has already said platforms should be forced to do. Uh, Earn It is an attack on security. Throughout his term as Attorney General, William Barr has frequently and vocally demanded lawful access to encrypted communications, ignoring the bedrock technical consensus that it's impossible to build a backdoor that is only available to law enforcement. Barr is far from the first administration official to make impossible demands of encryption providers. He joins a long history of government officials from both parties demanding that encryption providers compromise their users' security. We know how Barr is going to use the power on the, quote, best practices panel to, uh, to break encryption. He said over and over that he thinks the best practice is to always give law enforcement extraordinary access. So it's easy to predict that Barr could use Earn It to demand that providers of end-to-end -end encrypted communications give law enforcement officers a way to access users' encrypted messages. This could take the form of straight-up mandated, uh, straight mandated backdoors, or subtler but no less dangerous solutions, such as client-side scanning. These demands would put encryption providers like WhatsApp and Signal in an awful conundrum. 
I had to face the possibility of losing everything in a single lawsuit or knowingly undermine their own user's security, making all of us more vulnerable to criminals. If any more evidence that earn it is a thinly veiled attack on your right to secure and private communications, take note of one more subtle change it would bring to the law. Under earn it, a plaintiff would no longer be required to prove that a defendant actually knew about sexual exploitation in order to win a lawsuit against them. The plaintiff would only be required to prove the defendant acted, quote, recklessly. Lowering this standard opens the door to, uh, wide to lawsuits based simply on providing secure end-to-end encrypted communications channels, a practice the Attorney General has characterized as irresponsible, which could be used to argue that encryption providers are acting recklessly. Um, which you could absolutely make that argument. Uh, earn it is an attack on innovation. Weakening Section 230 makes it much more difficult for a startup to compete with the likes of Facebook or Google. Giving platforms a legal requirement to screen out or filter users' posts makes it extremely difficult for a platform without the resources of, of big five tech companies to grow its user base. And of course, if a startup can't grow its user base, it can't get the investment necessary to compete, etc., uh, etc. Et you all know how that works. Um, I'm not going to finish this. The, the rest of it is just about that fact. Um, they are going to keep hammering on encryption. They're going to keep doing it. And eventually, they're going to win because they have the guns and Signal doesn't. <laughs> so they're going to eventually win the fight against encryption. The best way we talk about being able to assert your rights in light of their having been stepped on, um, the way that you can fight this when it eventually happens is to learn how to roll your own services, uh, which you can absolutely do and you can do it relatively cheaply. It's just a little janky and requires a little bit of know-how. and if not know-how, then time. Because if you spend enough time on a thing, even if you don't know, have the know-how, you can make it work. Um, I've, I've put together enough networking uh, items to know that. I, I don't exactly know all of their, what there is to know about networking, but I've put together enough networks and run into enough problems that, you know, with enough time to invest in the project, I can get it done. Um, and that's how it is for most technological stuff. If, if it's not about knowing exactly what you're doing, it's about having the time to fuck it up and eventually get it right. Um, the, so knowing how to roll your own services is probably the answer to this. If not that, maybe depending on foreign services, but then you're depending upon, you know, foreign businesses on foreign soil who have their own laws to comply with to, you know, with your secure stuff, which is, it's arguably okay. You have services like ProtonMail that, that are probably pretty trustworthy. Um, a lot of VPNs are, are sort of, uh, your, your own sort of, uh, a lot of VPNs are no log VPNs and things like that. They just, they just don't keep logs or they, they destroy them after a couple of days or whatever it is that they have to keep them. Um, so, I don't know. Knowing how to roll your own stuff is ultimately the answer. Uh, which you can absolutely do. There are open source, uh, free and open source programs for just about everything that you do, um, so that you can roll your own. You can run your own email server in your house. It's just a computer. So, an email is relatively data light, so you don't really have to worry about getting, like, a business plan from your ISP. You can run your own email server. You can encrypt it. And you can do all of this stuff. Um, you can roll your own VPN. There are absolutely methods of rolling your own VPN so that you can uh, encrypt your own traffic to a server you control and nobody is going to see your activity just like any other VPN. It's just going to a server that you control or that you own. Um, you probably don't want to do that, though, from a server in your house because that's your exit node. <laughs> and it's like, well, I mean, it's obviously your house that the traffic's going to be coming from. So you want to do it from, from a server farm or a corporate server. Um, but the VPN still works because it's the software. The software is running. Yeah. And whoever's serving you 
uh, that that server, whoever's whoever you're paying to host this software for you, not likely to be able to crack the software because it's the software. The software is open source. People test it all the time and they would be stupid to do that. So know how to roll your own stuff because you may not be able to depend on things like Signal. You may not be able to depend on things like Proton. You may not be able to depend on um, VPNs for too much longer. And, and there's no telling when they're finally going to beat encryption, um, but they will. Because again, they have the guns. That's the whole point that, that speaks to the core of, if I can get a little bit philosophical for a second, which I haven't done on the show in a while, but that speaks to the core of what anarchism is about. It's about getting rid of organizations that have a monopoly on force. The monopoly on force is what gives the government its ability to do whatever the fuck it wants, because it has the guns, and it's the only organization that can use them legitimately. Full stop. So. All they have to do is say, no, no, no. See, Signal, you have to give us access to encrypted communications. And Signal can say, I'd rather not. All they want, but as soon as there's a gun involved, that gun being a law, then their hands are tied. They either have to sacrifice their business in the name of, um, in the name of their principles, which they're not gonna do, or they comply with the law and they're going to comply with the law. And eventually the government will win. When, it, when the government sets its sights on a thing, it will win. Figure out how to roll your own VPN. Figure out how to use Tor. Figure out how to, um, there are, there's a lot of great peer-to-peer -peer stuff that's, that's getting started up. We got to, the, the, the peer-to-peer -peer encrypted net internet is starting. It's, it's being developed as we speak. Let me see if I can find, there's one particular program or thing. It's called IPFS. Shut up, Origin. No, I don't want to update you. Why is Origin even running? Um, it's called IPFS. And I'll put a link to this in the show notes. And IPFS is the interplanetary file system. And what this does, I'll just go to their how it works section real quick. Um, it is a peer-to-peer -peer blockchain system. <laughs> Ixie, LOL. Yeah, Origin for some reason wants to be involved. Uh, Origin fucking sucks. It was doing that to me during Antifiles last week. Yeah, I don't even know why it's running. It's I, I'm pretty sure I have it set not to start up automatically. And it's not in the tray. Like, it's literally not here. <laughs> and it's still yelling at me. Oh my god, fuck Origin. Um, okay, here's how IPFS works. This is their... It's very pared down and, and very basic language that they use. But it's interesting. Um, uh, take a look at what happens when you add a file to IPFS. Your file and all the blocks within it is given a unique fingerprint called a cryptographic hash. IPFS removes duplications across the network. Each network node stores only content that it is interested in, plus some indexing information that helps figure out which node is storing what. When you look up a file to view or download, you're asking the network to find the nodes that are storing the content behind that file's hash. You don't need to remember the hash, though. Every file can be found by human-readable names using a decentralized system, uh, naming system called IPNS. Um, they, it's generally used for, uh, archiving right now. It's a lot of people who are archiving stuff and, and holding it on, on various nodes so that it, so that it's backed up in multiple offsite locations. That's a great way, great thing to use this for. Um, people have built applications on this. People have built, um, things like cloud-based messaging applications. On IPFS, they've built things like, um, I think there's IPFS slash apps, maybe, is the URL for this. 
Damn it, now I can't remember. I'll put a link to this, though, in the show notes because it's a it's a great open source... Uh, I believe it's open source. Actually, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, it works through a browser extension, a desktop app, JavaScript. Where's the information on it being open source? Because I'm pretty sure it's open source. It's, it's, it's decentralizing the web. That's the goal. And that's what they're doing over at IPFS. So maybe get involved in these, in these projects. Maybe start figuring out how to do stuff like this or how to get involved in stuff like this. Maybe, I mean, you don't have to be a developer. Just learn how to use it because as th they take control of the internet more and more, they being government in particular, but also this works for large corporations. Um, again, most of, uh, I don't know if it's most, but a plurality of the internet is stored on AWS servers. There's a, there's a plurality of the content on the internet is stored on Amazon Web Services. So that's, that's one company it has everything that we can move away from that. We can move away from that. The goal, it should be moving away from that. And there are a lot of people who are working on that. Um, people who are working on things like IPFS, um, things like encrypted, other encrypted peer-to-peer -peer programs and systems. We will decentralize the internet and then they will not be able to do shit to us. We will take the internet into our own hands. We will own it again. And it's gonna happen. It's just gonna take time. And hopefully we can get the bedrock of it built. I think IPFS is gonna be a major player in that. We can get the bedrock of the decentralized internet built before they decide to tear everything down, which I think is totally doable. Basically, it's there. I think IPFS is pretty much it as far as the bedrock of the decentralized internet goes. Um, you, can you, you take that and you pair it with programs like speech, um, spe.ch. Uh, I say programs, it's really more of a service. Uh, it's a blockchain and you just upload files. They're stored on chain. They can never be taken down because in order to take down one of those files, you'd have to take down the entire chain. This is where a lot of the 3D gun guys are uploading their files is to places like speech and places that are blockchains that these are, this is hard because in order to take down one file, you have to take down the whole chain and they're not going to do that. So, you know, there's a compelling reason why they can't do it or it'll shut down. But those, those, these kinds of things, it's open source. Every, all of this stuff is open source. These blockchains, uh, you can build your own chain. It's not hard to roll that program. I don't believe, um, you know, you might have to have some technical knowledge of how it's done, but people are going to do that. So I would just be becoming familiar with the open source, uh, peer to peer solutions that exist now because they are going to be the internet going forward. If you want an internet that's free of government interference, um, because it will be, and they won't be able to stop it because it'll all be encrypted. They won't know what they're looking at. Um, let's move on now to a major thing that I wanted to talk about. You know, I am, I am proud of being the degenerate that I am. Um, and I'm proud of it for pretty much one reason and one reason only. I used to be, I used to be ashamed of it. I used to be ashamed of being a fucking degenerate. <sighs> Then I read Thaddeus Russell's book, uh, Renegade History of the United States, and his book makes a compelling argument for the idea that it's the degenerates that run the world, that the degenerates are the ones that not only create culture, but that push culture forward. It's the minority on the margins that are driving the bus, ultimately, when it comes to culture. And that made me somewhat proud to be a degenerate, because when you think about it, you look back in time, and it's, I mean, the people who have put up the biggest fights for free speech have been pornographers. The first women to own land in the United States were in the West, and the land that they owned, and the, and the, the, the real property, real estate that they owned, were whorehouses. Um, in some cases, they could actually vote, too. 
They were given the right to vote in the West before anywhere else. Um, so it's degeneracy that's pushed culture forward forever. Um, I think that's always been the case, and I think it always will be the case, especially in a free society where degenerates are free to be degenerates. Then we get to make all the decisions. We know what's cool before you do. And I think that's pretty cool. I think it's, I think I'm, I'm proud now to be in that club. Again, I used to be ashamed. I used to be ashamed for liking Japanese cartoons and, uh, and, and, you know, porn and, 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 and being into like knowing how to fuck and all this other stuff. Like I, I used to be ashamed of this, liking dirty jokes, stuff like that. Not anymore because I'm behind the wheel. People like me are the ones behind the wheel. And I think it's important to remember that. And so, and always remember, by the way, that it's the pornographers that have been protecting your right to free speech forever. You owe the pornographers. Next time you want to talk shit about pornographers, think about the fact that you're allowed to do so because it's them that you owe that to. I'm very passionate about that idea. People love to shit on pornographers, but pornographers have been protecting us decades, hundreds of years, in fact. Um, let's go to reason. HFTM says I smell a possible fallacy. Hey, it's, it's possible. It's possible, but Thaddeus' book makes a great case for it. Really solid case for it. Um, let's move to, okay. Yes, this is why I'm talking about this. Maggie McNeil, uh, unabashed whore. That's how she describes herself, generally. Um, she writes pieces about um, prostitution and the way that laws are bad for not only prostitutes, but women generally. Um, the way that government tends to be bad for, again, not only prostitutes, but women in general. And culture, society in general. Um, she's wonderful. I love reading her stuff. I recommend you do too. But she wrote a piece for Reason, How the War on Sex Work crushes underprivileged women. Um, this was published, this is in the March 2020 issue of Reason. That prohibitionist laws are always, always enforced more heavily upon the poor, the disadvantaged, and minorities is not, I think, controversial. One would have to contort one's brain in a manner worthy of a Cirque du Soleil performance to ignore the fact that cops are more hev uh, that cops more heavily patrol poor and minority neighborhoods and actively look for people to arrest, that judges and juries have less sympathy uh, for those they perceive as others, and that because poor people overwhelmingly lack the resources to mount an adequate criminal defense, or even bail, they're far more likely to plead guilty to whatever a prosecutor offers, just so they can get it over with and at least try to get back to their lives. Protectionist laws, including occupational licensing, similarly harm those who are not yet established in a field, since non-incumbents are less likely to be consulted about the content of those laws and, how, uh, and far less likely to be able to afford compliance costs after the regulations take effect. These are among the reasons sex workers almost universally prefer prostitution. Decriminalization to the regulatory systems, uh, I'm sorry, prostitution decriminalization to the regulatory systems characteristic of what's called legalization. The former, unlike the so, unlike so-called drug decriminalization, takes sex work out of the hands of the police altogether, while the latter plants a thicket of special sex work-specific rules, regulations, laws, licenses, permits, codes, and prohibitions that invariably create a two-tiered system. One for those who have the money, know-how, political or business connections, and other resources to comply uh, with and thus function legally, and one for those who do not. In every country with a legalized system, we see the same pattern. Well-connected business people who have never themselves done sex work buy up all the brothel licenses, while racial or, racial or gender minorities, migrants, and other disadvantaged groups are far more likely to be arrested for working illegally within that legal system, often for violating the same kinds of ridiculous and unnecessary rules that governments love foisting upon industries to which politicians or the cartels who own them have taken a dislike. Even within the fully criminalized systems typical in the United States, there are glaring disparities of enforcement 
Most of y'all reading this probably already know that while white and non-white Americans use recreational drugs at roughly equal rates, minorities are arrested more frequently, charged more heavily, and more frequently caged and for longer terms. And most of y'all can probably guess that it's the same with sex work. While there are sex workers and clients of every description, sex workers of color, trans sex workers, and street workers are dramatically more likely to be hassled, arrested, and even robbed or raped by police than their white, cisgender, and indoor working counterparts. Black trans street workers falling into all of these groups uh, practically have targets painted on their backs. They're, they're often arrested merely for daring to show their faces outdoors, a phenomenon that activists call walking while trans. The same is true for their clients. Poor minority men who can only afford the generally lower price services of street workers are far more likely to be ensnared by police women looking to entrap them into committing a crime that, uh, than are affluent white men who will visit high-end escorts who discreetly do business in apartments or houses in nice neighborhoods. In one raid a few years ago, nearly every surname of the men arrested in a John Sting in Seattle was Hispanic, despite the fact that Seattle is, to put it politely, much less ethnically diverse than most U.S. cities. Just as poverty, minority status, and other disadvantages make people more vulnerable to the predations of police and prosecutors, so too do such attributes expose them to a greater likelihood of exploitation by criminals and unscrupulous business people who don't quite qualify as criminals but are bad enough. Disadvantaged sex workers face a greater likelihood of violence from people, whether law enforcement or civilian sexual predators posing as clients, and they usually lack the resources to set themselves up as indoor escorts, which requires things like professional photos, quality lingerie, professional-looking website, advertising, beauty treatments, the rent for an in-call location in a neighborhood wealthier men won't be afraid to visit, the cost of a dependable car for doing out-calls. I could go on, but I suspect you get the picture. It shouldn't be surprising that, in desperation, someone will become involved with smooth-talking boyfriends or other middlemen who promise to, keep them, uh, to help them access those things and thereby move off the street and into a safer mode of work. But often, the boyfriend is a liar, or the middleman wants more money or more control than the sex worker anticipated. And before she knows that she finds herself in an exploitative or abusive situation. Both the frequency and the severity of such situations have been outrageously exaggerated by moralists who lib liberally bandy about the label sex trafficking, who criticize the workers involved as passive victims rather than rational actors trying to do the best they can with very limited options, and who pretend that exploitation is the norm in our trade rather than an outlier, and an occurrence that would be even less common in the absence of prohibition. Nonetheless, as you can imagine, these situations are more common among poor women, migrants, underage sex workers, and so on. The artificial hysteria around sex trafficking has made it effective, an effective excuse for any oppressive law the government wants to pass, beginning with more money for cops and expanding into mass surveillance, greater restrictions on women's movement in public, and, perhaps most pernicious of all, internet censorship. In March 2018, Congress passed a legislative package colloquially known as FOSTA, uh, I call it SESTA-FOSTA, she says FOSTA-SESTA, and formerly known as the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act and the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. Even before President Donald Trump signed it into law a few weeks later, it had done tremendous damage to the sex work ecosystem. The law makes, web makes a web platform liable for facilitating prostitution and sex trafficking, neither of which it defines adequately if someone uses it to advertise illegal services. The chilling effect was dramatic. The majority of sites frequented by sex workers immediately shut down, closed themselves off to U.S. visitors, enacted draconian censorship policies, or, if the site's entire business model was based in sex work advertising, as with industry leader Eros.com, established a series of continually changing, increasingly incomprehensible, and confusingly silly rules about the types of pictures, links, and words that would be allowed. Uh, at about the same time, the Fed shut down Backpage, the colossus of inexpensive... Uh, sex work ads, its former owners have been subjected to a campaign of persecution that has not yet run its course. Almost overnight, 
The industry was thrown into chaos worldwide. Although it was found by, founded by Americans, Backpage was popular in Australia and many other places where prostitution is legal to one degree or another. Sex workers in those countries were forced to scramble for new ways to advertise their services. In some cases, they opted to build their own websites, domiciled and hosted in countries beyond the reach of American puritanism. In the United States, the consequences have been nothing less than catastrophic. Many disadvantaged sex workers were forced to return to street work. Some younger women who had never worked without online ads were pushed to the street for the first time, placing them in far greater danger than either their indoor working sisters or the older outdoor workers who at least knew what to expect. Naturally, quote, not in my backyard, NIMBY interests reacted badly to increasing number of street workers, and many police departments have responded with more raids and arrests on popular strolls. Ah, fucking NIMBYs. Other U.S. sex workers were able to scrape together the resources to move uh, to more expensive ad sites, such as the aforementioned Eros, but the personal information that platform now demands that advertisers share, scans of a photo ID with a legal name clearly displayed, full-face photos in the same outfits used in, in, uh, in face-blurred ad shots, etc., have become so terrifyingly invasive that many established escorts, myself included, have abandoned it on the theory that the company may be amassing data to offer as a bargaining chip when the feds come after it, as the Department of Justice has already indicated it will. Even those who have succeeded in moving into more upscale forms of work have a big problem. In recent years, U.S. law enforcement agencies have been adopting the faux-feminist in-demand model of prohibition which involves prosecuting clients more heavily than sex workers. The goal of this strategy is to win the support of uh, carceral feminists who can't or won't comprehend that attacking a business's clients is an attack on the business, regardless of rhetoric. The shift has understandably made potential clients uh, much worrier, interesting, than the escort behind an ad might actually be a gang, that the escort behind an ad might actually be a gang of cops to run their, uh, out to ruin their lives. And that in turn has made many men more reluctant to provide the personal information that sex workers use to screen potential customers. Of course, established pro uh, providers will generally have a considerable online footprint, ratings and reviews, a blog or a Twitter account, personal website, videos, searchable pictures, even articles in libertarian magazines. But would-be clients can examine that would-be clients can examine to help them be sure sex workers the real McCoy and not a trap. More mature ladies also generally have a healthy number of regular clients built up over the years. It'll be just fine, for example. And every time I'm quoted in an interview or appear in a documentary, I get more requests for days. I'll be just fine. I'm sorry, she says. You know who isn't likely to have such an unmistakably real internet presence? Those who are trying to move indoors from the street. Those who used to take out cheap back page ads and don't have their own professional websites. Part-timers who can't be too conspicuous about their side hustle for fear of losing their day jobs or their kids. Those who were new to the industry when the FOSTA SESTA hit. Uh, in short, the disadvantage. And so, as is always the case, the effects of prohibition and policing fall most heavily on those members of society who already suffer far more than their share of misfortune and violence. This is paired, at least in the way I'm presenting it, with another art from Reason, written by Elizabeth Nolan Brown, published on the 31st. And this kind of goes back to, we were talking about kind of the, the revitalization of a war on porn in, in a recent episode. Uh, I don't know how recent, but... Uh, people were especially conservatives, and this is, I make the point here that I did then, conservatives are not your allies if you're an anti-government person. Um, conservatives are just as pro-government as anybody else. Uh, they just hide it better. There were the trappings of people who don't want the government to have so much power. But in the interest of a culture war or something to that effect, they will absolutely give the government all the power it could possibly need to ruin uh, everyone's lives. Um, but this, I thought, was an interesting article. What the, what the porn industry thinks of the new war on porn. 
GOP attacks on internet smut are heating up, but the porn industry has more practical threats to worry about. Republicans in Congress recently demanded that the Justice Department step up enforcement against online pornography, and their counterparts at conservative magazines and think tanks have been proclaiming porn's evils with renewed vigor. The right-wing intellectuals like uh, Saurabh Amari and Terry Schilling writing anti-porn screeds. Uh, but Republicans have often demonized porn during elections or scandals. The 2016 election cycle saw Republicans declaring pornography a public health crisis. So uh, are the bad old days of obscenity per prosecutions coming back? Are the current calls for a crackdown just another tawdry political show? Last week, I attended the AVN Adult Entertainment Expo in Las Vegas, an annual trade conference, fan meet and greet, and award show, in which much of the porn industry gathers to talk shop, show off their latest products, and assess the state of the business. The performers and producers I talked with told me they're intimately acquainted with how hypocr uh, hypocritical politicians tease their base by performing disgust at porn. Quote, politicians have always used the porn industry as a topic to be raised during election years, says D. Siren, uh, Siren, an adult performer and CEO of Siren Triple X Studios, which brands itself as showcasing, quote, only real women that love real sex. In my experience, politicians enjoy porn in their personal lives as much as every other group of people, if not more, says actress Mitland Ward. Uh, who collected three AVN awards this year. Quote, you should ask them why they feel they need to stigmatize sex workers during election years if it goes against what they privately enjoy. Amberly Rothfield, a clip creator, adult marketing consultant, and phone sex operator, suggests that progress on marijuana legalization, quote, means that politicians need to show they're strong on other issues, leaving us. Rothfield thinks the level of anti-porn sentiment in this country is, uh, has stayed the same, but the anti-porn crowd is, quote, getting louder, meaning same... Uh, meaning same, uh, some amount of people, meaning same amount of people, but they're doubling down on those policies as other ground is being taken. While no one would say that renewed obscenity convictions are around the corner, prosecutions aren't unimaginable. Quote, I think it's unlikely that there would be a conviction for obscenity, attorney D. Gil Sher uh, Sherlin said, uh, I'm sorry, Sperlin said in Navy in session on the legal issues facing adult entertainment, but prosecutions are often, quote, done for political gain, he added. And in that case, quote, they don't care if they get a conviction or not. And political stigmas express themselves in many ways. Beyond the anti-porn culture war, adult entertainers and those advertising them also have more immediate practical concerns, like the effects of FOSTA, a 2018 law that's had a chilling effect on online content related to sex, and new labor laws like California's AB5, which would upend porn economics. Uh, the enduring legal problem for porn producers and performers comes down to a single word, obscenity. Obscenity is one of the few types of speech exempted from protection by the First Amendment. Yet it's never been clear what precisely it means. Federal statutes contain no explicit definition of obscenity, and guidance from courts has been maddeningly subjective. The current legal standard was set in 1973 by Miller v. California. Obscenity is, any, is anything the, quote, average person, using modern, quote, community standards, would think appeals to, quote, prurient interests, depict or describe sexual activity, quote, offensively, and be without, quote, serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. Some of the right-wing anti-porn Jeremiads of the Trump era have called for ramping up the legal assault on porn, uh, arguing that the courts could take much stronger line as to what the as to what constitutes obscenity. Quote, I don't think the obscenity law works today because it's based on I know porn when I see it, and that's so meaningless, especially in today's day and age, says John Stagliano, who has the distinction of being the last person to face a federal obscenity prosecution for mainstream professional porn productions. A judge dismissed the charges against Stagliano and his company, Evil Angel, in 2010, Stagliano has donated to the Reason Foundation, the nonprofit that publishes the website. Since then, federal obscenity units have kept on prosecuting sexual material featuring minors. The, the two Bush presidencies were more aggressive about targeting porn that featured consenting adults. In 2005, the Department of Justice created an obscenity prosecution task force to go after, quote, the distributors of hardcore pornography 
to find us any visual depiction of uncovered genitals or sexual activity. Quote, the special challenges that obscenity case cases pose in the computer age require an equally specialized response to Christopher Ray, then assistant attorney general on May 5th, 2005. Ray is now director of the FBI and Bill Barr, now attorney general, oversaw aggressive obscenity prosecutions during the first Bush administration. That may help explain why some conservatives think it's time to have a go at it again. Quote, change is constant and the laws are going backwards and forwards, says porn director and star Steve Holmes, who has worked on adult film sets and sometimes public streets around the world. You have to adapt. You have to adjust. But adjusting can be hard with an administration as unpredictable as this one. Quote, anytime a conservative politician starts thinking they're going to lose or needs to rile up the base, they start thinking, well, where can I go that isn't going to hurt our interests? And pornography is usually pretty high on that list. Spruin uh, said during the legal issues panel, but quote, there's a distinct difference this time. Our president owns a string of hotels, and those hotels offer pay-per-view porn, so it's probably less likely that obscenity prosecutions are going to be an issue. Co-panelist Alan Gilbert, the First Amendment intellectual property and entertainment attorney, disagreed. Quote, I was on the board with that whole analysis. I was on board with that whole analysis of Trump before he was elected, said Gilbert. Seeing how he's governed, I don't think that idea holds water anymore. Because Trump likes to rile up his base, quote, and this base would love it if Trump were after porn. A film being shown in hotels owned by the president may be a pretty good sign that it's not a violation of community standards, but, quote, they're not going to prosecute the relatively softcore porn that's in his hotel, suggested Gilbert. They're going after the things that are believed to degrade women or things like that. When I talked to him later, Stagliano agrees, suggesting that who winds up prosecuted is, quote, more related to, to the disgust emotion than rational analysis or public safety priorities. Stagliano mentions director Max Hardcore, who was indicted on obscenity charges in 2007 for five films that feature fisting, pee, and vomit. The films that got him three years and ten months in federal prison. Max Hardcore, uh, quote, Max Hardcore got put in jail because what he was doing looked disgusting to a lot of people. This is not normal sex, says Stagliano. Quote, not that many people are going to stand up and defend any sex that's viewed as being abnormal or not part of the mainstream. It continues to talk about FOSTA and um, on the new California gig economy law. We've already talked about both of those things, uh, the gig economy law on uh, more recent episodes and FOSTA just now. So I'm going to skip those. But um, this this is a much longer piece. I only read about half of it. The rest of it will be in the show notes. I wanted to end this discussion in order to kind of round out the context surrounding all of this. I wanted to end on something of a high note. This was published on the 24th of January on EFF.org, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who we read earlier in the show. And the headline is, Victory, Lawsuit Challenging FOSTA Reinstated by Court. San Francisco. A lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of FOSTA, a federal law that's driven marginalized communities and speech about sex work and sex work offline, was reinstated today in a court ruling that recognizes the statute poses a substantial threat to free speech. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia ruled that two plaintiffs in the lawsuit brought by Woodhull Freedom Foundation, American Rights Watch, Alex Andrews, the Internet Archive, and Eric uh, uh, Kosiak, uh, I'm going to assume is how it's pronounced, to block enforcement of the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, um, had, quote, standing to pursue their constitutional challenge to the statute. The lawsuit argues that the act expansively criminalizes online speech related to sex work and removes important protections for online intermediaries in violation of their First Amendment rights. The plaintiffs are represented by EFF, Davis, Wright, Tremaine LLP, Waters Law Group, and Daphne Keller. Quote, we are pleased the court recognized that the law's undefined and vague terms can sweep up constitutionally protected speech and potentially lead to federal, state, and local criminal prosecution, as well as civil liability. The EFF staff attorney, Marin Mackey, uh, sorry, said EFF staff attorney, Marin. Quote, the court's ruling recognizes that plaintiffs face a substantial threat of broad criminal and civil liability Merely for speaking online, 
or hosting forums that support sex workers. FOSTA makes it a felony to use or operate an online service with the intent to, quote, promote or facilitate the prostitution of another person. Vague terms with wide-ranging meanings that can include speech that makes sex work easier in any way. FOSTA also expanded the scope of other federal laws on sex trafficking to include online speech and reduce statutory immunities previously applied under Section 230. The plaintiffs sued to block enforcement of the law because its overbroad language sweeps up internet speech about sex, sex workers, and sexual freedom, including harm reduction information and speech advocating the decriminalization of prostitution. Craigslist and Reddit have shut down personal sections, even non-sexual ones, and sites supporting sex workers have censored themselves for fear of running afoul of the law. A federal judge dismissed the case, ruling that the plaintiffs lacked standing because they failed to prove a credible threat that they'd be prosecuted for violating FOSTA. Because the court dismissed the case on procedural grounds, it did not rule on whether FOSTA is constitutional. The appeals court reversed, finding that plaintiffs Alex Andrews and Eric Kozik had, had legal standing. The court ruled that Andrews, who runs a website for sex, sex workers called Rate That Rescue, faced a credible threat that FOSCA, FOSTA would be enforced against her. With respect to Kosick, the court ruled that, she, that he had shown uh, that FOSTA harmed his ability to advertise his therapeutic massage business because, in the wake of FOSTA's passage, Craigslist shut down the section on its site that hosted his advertisements and prevented him from posting them anywhere on the site. EFF and co-counsel in the case argue that plaintiffs don't have to wait until they face prosecution before challenging a law regulating speech when, as here, the vague and overbroad prohibitions of the law are causing numerous speakers to censor themselves and their users. Quote, the court agreed that the plaintiffs have shown their First Amendment rights are under threat, said he. We look forward to giving them their day in court to show that FOSTA is unconstitutional. And then they have links to both the decision and more information on the case. I am so happy this lawsuit is happening. This could be the lawsuit that kills FOSTA, SESTA FOSTA, because this is a... This is a lawsuit that is arguing the right things. There are a lot of lawsuits that people mount against government action. People mount against, um, against the government for passage of legislation, things like that, that argue the wrong damn thing. This, ar- this lawsuit is actually arguing the correct things. It violates Section 230, and it chills protected speech. That's all you need. The language is overbroad. The law is not legitimate. This is all you need to get this law struck down. And it should be, because those things are true about this law. They couched discussion of this law, and this is ultimately the point that I was trying to get to, or, or this is part of the point that I was trying to get to. All of this discussion about prostitution, sex work, about, about uh, pornography, all of this discussion has been couched in this idea that you're protecting kids. We just read a story from... Another story from the EFF about this Graham Blumenthal bill that uses all of the right language to make it seem as though it's about protecting kids. But this shit is never about protecting kids because they've also been couching every discussion they've had about prostitution as though it's sex trafficking. That's simply not the case. That is the minority of prostitution cases. Most prostitutes are doing the job because it's one, either the only thing they can do, or two, the thing they want to do. There are very few who are trafficked into it. Very few. And this is something that nobody wants to kind of recognize because you're talking about kids and everybody goes crazy. Think of the children! All this other shit. It's the case. Very few people are trafficked into sex work. And frankly, even if it were more, it doesn't justify violating the rights of people who are not running afoul of any other law. People who aren't trafficking the kids. People who are prostitutes because they want to be or because it's their only option. <laughs> Ixie, that's going on the soundboard. Think of the children. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I, I just hate it. I hate it. It's designed. It's, there are words that are used 
by politicians and by pundits and by think tanks and by all these other organizations that want to control you, there are words that are used to short circuit the brain. And it short circuits the part of your brain that thinks rationally and it immediately hooks into emotion. I know this because I know rhetorical strategy. It's something that I employ when I write because it's part of writing. It's part of being rhetorical. It's part of making arguments is short circuiting the brain and making people think on a dumber level than they usually would because it can get them halfway there. Um, it's just part of rhetoric. And one of those phrases is conspiracy theory. As we know, conspiracy theory is a phrase that's used to short, short, short circuits people's brains because they have been effectively programmed to believe that conspiracy theory and crazy mean the same thing. They don't in much the same way that, um, the brain's been short circuited, uh, by all these politicians who say, my first job is to protect the people of the United States when it's not. There's nothing in the oath of office that any politician takes that says protecting the people of the United States. They're supposed to protect and defend the Constitution. They're not supposed to protect and defend the people. That is not their job. It's not even the cop's job. And we know this from two separate cases at this point. There was recently a, uh, a circuit case that reinforced Warren VDC. It was a case that involved the cops from the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting. The cops that didn't do shit. Warren VDC was reinforced. The cops do not owe any individual citizen a duty of protection unless that citizen is in their care, i.e. arrested or being detained. So it's not their job to protect you, but they're going to keep saying that it is. That's another way that they short circuit you. The politician goes up there and says, my first job is to protect the people of the United States. It's not. They're lying. But they say that because it short circuits your brain. And that's another one that people say. Think of the children. All they have to do is invoke kids and your brain is short circuited. You get, you get fried. You start thinking on a dumber level than you normally would because everybody has it in them to protect a kid. Kids are the genetic material that's going to keep us going forward as a species. People protect kids that are not their kids. Why? Because we are designed to want to protect them. We evolved to have that because it keeps our species safe and people will use this to their advantage. So when they couch language uh, with regard to prostitution into um, the context of sex trafficking, it short circuits you and you have to fight that. You have to fight that and say, no, wait a minute. Bullshit. You want me to be dumb. I'm not going to be dumb because that's ultimately what it is. That's what these phrases do. Sex trafficking. People immediately think of little Asian babies. Like that's immediately what they think of is little Asian kids, because that's what we've been taught that word means. And it is what it means a lot of the time, but it's not being applied where it belongs. It's being applied to conversations about adult women doing a job they either wouldn't want to do or the job that they can do. It's just like the idea of conspiracy theory. People call the Epstein thing a conspiracy theory. Well, wait a minute. These are things that we know. These are all facts. Epstein was a sex trafficker. We know this. He was convicted for it. <laughs> so all of this, all of this stuff that people, all of these phrases that people use, I know it because I've done it because it's part of rhetoric. Part of being an effective art of a person who is effective at arguing a point is being able to manipulate the brain of the person with whom you're arguing. That's part of what makes you good at it. And it's the nature of the beast. And it's for two reasons. I'll, I'll give you the reasons why. Because what I'm saying sounds terrible, but it's not. It's, there are very good reasons for doing so. The first is that people do not respond to rational arguments. We just know this for a fact. People do not respond to rational arguments. They do respond to emotional arguments and they respond to derision. Those are the two things that people tend to respond to. Those are the two things that change minds. You can argue something rationally with a person all day long and it's never going to get across to them. Why? Because human beings are rationalizers. It's what we do. We justify everything that we can. It's why we make up things to fit a natural pattern that we see in the world. We see a natural pattern in the world. Oh, that's because uh, it, it seems consistent to me that somebody 
um, uh, just like this, rain. There are not just one, but multiple ancient civilizations that believe that rain was literally semen. They believe that rain was God's semen because they noticed every time it rains, shit grows. And that's what happens with when we come. So it's consistent that rain would be semen. And that's multiple ancient civilizations. We are rationalization machines. That's why rational arguments don't work because people have already made the rationalization part work in their head. That's why they believe what they believe. So rational arguments aren't going to get anywhere. Emotional arguments and derision do. If you can make somebody feel an emotional connection to the idea that's not theirs, or if you can make them feel shame for having the idea that they do have, those two things will change a person's mind because it short circuits that rational part of the brain and it makes them consider things from another angle. This can't be a good thing because again, we only believe the things we believe because we rationalize them to ourselves. And that's a very stubborn part of our brain. So sometimes short circuiting is the best thing to do in order to get a point across. But they use this trick and you see it everywhere. Every time someone in the media says that somebody's peddling conspiracy theory, they're doing that to short circuit the brain. And that's ultimately the point that I wanted to make here in this discussion about Sesta and Fosta, about this earlier law, about, um, about the war on porn, short circuiting people's brains. It's what they're doing. It's manipulation through and through. Sometimes it's useful. It's an abs it's absolutely a tool in your toolbox as a, uh, as someone who engages in rhetoric. It's absolutely a tool in your toolbox, but do not fall for it. Do not fall for it because it is manipulation. Um, and I'm glad then that a judge was able to see past it. I'm glad that a judge was able to see this case and say, no, this is absolutely people who could be affected by the overbroad language of this law. They absolutely have the right to fight this and they should. And it's, it's cases like this that are why I'm in law school. It's cases like this that are why I'm doing what I'm doing because I would love to be the guy on the front lines of this kind of shit. I would love to be that guy. It seems like so much fun. <laughs> oh man. I'll give you an excellent example. I'll give you an excellent example of this uh, strategy being being used against the population. Here we go. Why didn't it fire? Oh, because I'm clicked off of it. Here we go. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. How dare you? That is, that short circuits the brain, a child saying you've hurt me a short circuit the brain that's all it's for maxo you just joined hey man um i know i was counter programming this is rolling stuff so i'm not too worried about it but i did just finish the show so this is all i've had to say this is all i've had to say and i'm glad we could end on a high note the idea that this case against fosta has been reinstated it's gonna go to court people are gonna be heard and um if they get struck down by the uh by the lower courts i'm sure an appellate judge is gonna see this and say no this continues this, this goes up. I'm reversing the earlier decision because there's no, these, the points that they're making are perfect and the case law is there to support them. So they should go ahead, continue fighting this, appeal it, get this thing to the Supreme Court, get this, get this fucking law overturned because it's hurting people. We read in the, in the earlier story, it's literally hurting people. So this is all I've had for today. And, uh, thank you so much for listening. Um, I will, I guess I'll see you guys next week, man. I want to thank everybody who hung out in the chat and kept me on my toes during this recording. You can do that every week, A-I-R-A-D dot I-O slash live. I want to thank everybody who listens to the show, everybody who downloads the show, everybody who rates us and gives us a review on whatever platform you listen on. I want to thank the producers, all you glorious and magnanimous people who support this show. You can do that on A-I-R-A-D dot I-O or on the Rogue File, roguefile.com slash donate. Uh, you can find the things that I write on the Rogue File, roguefile.com. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Dean O Files. You can find the network on Twitter at Alt Net Radio. Go ahead and give us a follow. 
there. I love every single one of you glorious freaks, and I will be back with you next week. Y'all have a great week. This has been an alternative internet radio production. For more great shows like this, visit AIR at AIRAD.io. That's AIRAD.io.